pray. Father, thank you for Mark chapter 8 in this another wonderful story that you recorded out of all the many, many things your son did on earth. But you chose this one, Lord. You chose this one for us to know him better and for us to know ourselves better. So Lord, I pray that we would not be just hearers of the word, but we'd be doers. But in a sense, Lord, listening. So we know how to live, Lord. Walk with you in a worthy way as we've been called to. Lord, we pray that you would motivate us to be light in dark world, Lord. Thank you for all those who made it today, Lord. We're so grateful to see everyone here. Thank you for our families and our children. Thank you for the elderly, Lord. Lord, thank you for their legacy and their testimony they have laid down before us, Lord. We pray you'd strengthen them. Many of them are, are running their final years, Lord. Some are even at home watching now. And Lord, we pray for them that you would help them finish well, Lord. But thank you for the family God, the family of God and its diversity, Lord. Diverse in every way. You call from all corners of the globe, from all tribes and tongues and nations and people, all diversity, Lord, to be your family. And we are so grateful for that. Teach us great things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you look up some definitions on mentor, uh, it should say Jesus. Uh, he, he is probably the greatest mentor that's ever walked on the face of the earth. Everything he did with his disciples was to prepare them. And a good mentor is doing that. I pulled out some old books and looked at some old teaching stuff that taught about how to mentor and bring along those that are underneath your ministry or underneath your job or whatever it may be. These are not necessarily um, uh, spiritual lessons, but I want you to just listen to these thoughts that as, as what a mentor does and then think about what Jesus is doing in today's text. One, a mentor makes a commitment in a caring way. If you don't care about the person you're mentoring, <laughs> they'll pick that up. But a mentor makes a commitment in a caring way, which involves taking part in the learning process side by side with the learner. You're going to see that in this text. And, you, and, and if, you, if you've been here for this series in Mark and you've studied the Gospels, oh, is that so true of the Lord Jesus? Number two, mentors are often confronted uh, with the difficulty of preparing the learner before he or she is ready to change. So you don't get a mentoree who's all perfect and ready to go. That's why you're the mentor. <laughs> you're there to bring them along. So patience is necessary. We see that in Jesus. When you know that what you say may not be understood or even accepted in the learner at first but will make sense and bring value to the mentee as the situation requires. I'm, man, I, I know this text. I've been studying it all week. So, I mean, wow, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Three, when changes reach a critical level of pressure, when change reaches a critical level of pressure, learning can escalate. Do you learn when there's no, nothing going on? You, you learn when things are difficult, don't you? Here the mentor chooses to plunge the learner right into change, provoking a different way of thinking, a change in identity, and reordering of values. That's the goal as you bring in someone along. You throw them in the fire every once in a while. It helps them relook at what's going on, reorder their own values. We're going to see Jesus do that with his disciples. Four, a good mentor shows something understandable or uses an example to demonstrate a skill or an activity. You show what you are talking about. That's what you do. You show it by your own behavior. So Jesus is going to demonstrate. He's going to show a skill and an activity. He's going to show things right in front of them by his own behavior. And then lastly, a mentor focuses on the harvest. He's got vision, right? Looks beyond. And it's used to create awareness of what the, learned, the learner is going to experience and, and what he's going to draw to the conclusion. So the key questions are, what have you learned and how is it useful to you? So he's focusing on what the learner is going to do with what he was taught. 
Oh, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And so those attributes are so clearly seen as Jesus mentors his disciples for the preparation of coming ministry. Let's look at a couple of thoughts this morning down through this text. One, compassion gives great opportunity for the gospel. Jesus was always teaching this. Compassion gives great opportunity for the gospel. Well, the feeding of the 5,000 was recorded in Mark chapter 6. We remember we saw that, but it was actually recorded by all four gospel accounts. The feeding of the 4,000, which liberals dispute, and I'm going to prove that that isn't true a little later, um, that, that it actually took place, but only, only Mark records the details of it. Matthew mentions just a portion of it. And so this is unique to the book of Mark. Several months now have passed since that feeding of the 5,000. You noticed, in, if you look back at Mark 6, 39, it says that Jesus sat them down in green grass. Now in Mark 8, he's sitting them down on the ground. Possibly, in the time frame works, possibly uh, the first feeding was in the springtime. Now we're farther along, getting closer to the cross. Uh, now with the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's doubtlessly pressing into summertime now. So this timeline's real in keeping with that movement to the cross. So he's now, I, I, would, I would suggest he's probably eight to nine months to the cross. And he will soon start making his way to Jerusalem. Jesus had left the Jewish world, to remember, and he has now began a ministry in the Gentile world. He's teaching privately and publicly to his disciples. He's showing them that his goal is far more lofty than what their goals were. He's showing them that he has a worldwide desire for missions. He knows that from that gospel that he is going to display and lay down the gospel of God hanging on a cross, forgiving sins, will awaken every tribe, tongue, and people groups. And he will draw them to himself. So he started in Tyre, you remember that? He started over there and then made his way up to Sidon and then eventually over to Capolis where he healed the deaf and mute men. We talked about that last week. Now this is a large Gentile area. It's made up of those 10 cities and he's right in the middle of this area moving around probably up to about three months he's in this Gentile area. And the text seems to show that Jesus is still here. Look at verse 1 with me. In those days, when, they, when there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, we'll hold verse 2 for just a moment. Now, the dealing with a deaf man, uh, the deaf mute man, which just was an amazing passage, as we learned last week, it awakened this Gentile crowd to Jesus. That, that event, that compassion, all that Jesus did there seemed to awaken this Gentile crowd to the authority and power that Jesus had. And notice it says in those days, so I think it's referring back to this time frame when he was moving around this Gentile area. Clearly, we see that he's out in the remote areas and these people are following him. But, but now he's months later since that healing of the deaf and mute man. And notice there was again large crowds. So there's a, there's a repetition that's happening here. He just doesn't float in, do something, and leaves. He's, he's been parked in the Gentile world now for several months. A place where no Jew would find themselves. No one who wanted to be near the unclean. But not Jesus. He's right in the middle of all this. The healing at the end of chapter 7 in a sense, put Jesus on the map. And think about these pagan worshipers, these, these people who fell down before wood and stone gods, they've now seen that Christ can do something that their gods can't. <laughs> he opens the mouth of a mute. He opens the ears of the deaf. He tells the demons what to do. They now have realized he has something their gods don't. But in all that, in all that, just like us, Jesus knows the hearts of men. He knows whether you're after faith or food. Do you want to follow Jesus or you want a meal? He knows that. You can't hide these things from the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows every heart in this room. He knows every heart listening around the world or wherever they're coming from. He knows every heart. It's amazing. I think we work very hard to hide 
what's in our heart from the Lord. What a frivolous effort that is, isn't it? He knows your thoughts before you form them. (laughs) He knows us, doesn't he? And yet, and yet, think about that. Here's this Gentile world, doubtlessly the majority of them after a meal, after some kind of healing, after some kind of welfare program that he could provide for them. Jesus has compassion on them. Do you have compassion on people who are trying to take something from you? Or just want something from you? It's hard to have compassion for people like that, isn't it? Jesus does. Notice in verse 1 he says they have nothing to eat. He's observant. He knows what people are going through. And Mark notes that most likely they've run out of food. And notice also that Jesus calls his disciple and says to them in, in here in, in verse 2, look at this, I feel compassion for the people. I feel compassion. Now, you say, well, Scott, you've talked about this often and, and pointed this out throughout the Gospels that, that the Bible says over and over that Jesus has compassions. But as I, as I looked at this, I said, well, this is just another reaccount of this. But as I look closer, to particularly the original language, this is the only time the Bible uses this in a, in a present tense, meaning in, in a way that he, he's first person. I, I, Jesus, I feel compassion for these people. It's not a statement by the writer. This is a direct quote from the Lord Jesus Christ. I, myself, feel compassion. You say, well, why is that important? Because it isn't just someone saying that about somebody. It's Jesus telling us how he feels about sinners. How he hurts over those who don't have what they need. That's the way the Lord feels. And we know, we've discussed this before, this compassion comes from within, right? And so the, this word means uh, from the bowels, kind of the seed of the emotions. Um, we would express it maybe something like this. We would say, man, that was a gut-wrenching thought or a gut-wrenching desire. That's kind of the idea here, what he says. In my innermost being, in my gut, I have compassion for these people. What fun to be around someone who has compassion for people. Run around with some of our pastors as they go call on people and, and hurt over people. They're, they're very encouraging. They'll leave what they're doing. Um, they'll, they'll stop what they're studying. They'll get up and they'll go. Because God has taught them to have compassion as Jesus did. The, the word actually conjures up a little bit of suffering with it too. It, it's, it's a word that isn't just, well, I, you know, I feel kind of bad for these people. It, it means that I, I, I suffer with them because they're suffering. Have you ever heard anybody say something like this? Hey, brother, sister, I want to walk with you through this. That's quite a term. I want to walk with you. See, what they're saying is, I'm willing to suffer with you. I, I can't replace what, exactly what you're going through, but I'm willing to suffer with you. See, that's the feel of compassion that our Lord had for these people. It's, it's deep sympathy. It's deep kindness. It's inner kindness towards those who are hurting. And that's what Jesus does. And those of us that love the Lord Jesus, this should rub off on us. We should have hurt and desire for those who, who are going through difficulties. For, for you, if you believe God's calling you to the diaconate, uh, particularly here at Riverbend, it's the mark of our deacons. They have the gift of mercy. The, deacon, uh, the deacons are not there for some kind of committee to make some decisions on something. God gave the diaconate to the church to help load, uh, take the load off the elders in some sense and to see difficulties that are going within the church and minister to those people. They're not a welfare program in any sense. Please be careful of that. But they're men who have great compassion. And they have hurts for those who are going through. But they're not alone, right? I mean, think about our ministries here. You have places, girl, ladies like Sarah Circle and Hands of Grace, our warm ministry, and and countless other people who do acts of mercy for others. I pray, I pray that's coming from our love for the gospel. 
because you know United Way can do some of that too. The gospel must motivate our mercy. I mean, Jesus looked at these people. They're pagans. They're outside of the Abrahamic covenant at this point. They're going to die in their sins. They're disease-reddened. Uh, they, they're going through all kinds of things, and he has compassion. I mean, you go, well, yeah, they deserve it, right? Sometimes conservatives get a little hard on people, right? Get a job. <laughs> and though there's some truth to that, right? But is there compassion? Is there a gospel-driven compassion? What a difference between those things. See, the church can't have enough people who have compassion for people that are hurting. So this comes right from God, though, right? Jesus, this is nothing new. Remember when um, uh, Moses is, is up on the mount, he comes down, he's carrying the pillars, right? You can think of the Ten Commandments movies, that's all I know how to go, because I... And he looks down, and what's happening, man? These people that he's been up interceding for with God have now built a golden bull calf, an Egyptian god, and are laying down in front of it, worshiping it. (laughs) He says, God, I got to see your glory. He's just had it. He's, He's... been all through the battles with Pharaoh and getting the people out and they've been grumbling and complaining and, and now they're worshiping a God and, and he says, God, I gotta see your glory. And God tells him, look, you cannot look on me and live. You remember this? Exodus 33. So he puts him in the cleft of the rock. You know the Bible says in chapter 34, verse six, he passes in front of him. And proclaims, I am the Lord, the Lord God. I am compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and bounding in loving kindness and truth. What a statement of God. Is that the God you think of? Or do you think of an angry God who pounds you when you do something wrong? Depends on who mentored you. Did the word of God, Jesus Christ, mentor you? Because he demonstrates these things. He demonstrates great love and compassion and graciousness. In fact, Paul calls him this, calls God this, the Father of mercy, the God of all comfort. In 2 Corinthians 1.3, he says he will comfort you. I mean, listen to the statement. The Father of mercy, the God of all comfort. That's who comforts us. And this is Jesus, right? This is, this is who he is. Later, as Moses is recording the law and writing to the nation, Deuteronomy 4.31, he says, For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget your covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. An amazing statement. The Psalter in Psalms 103, verse 8, says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. This is repeated over and over and over. So what do you think Jesus is like when he's on earth? He's compassionate. And he's full of loving kindness. So this is the character of God. This is the character of Christ. This is what defines them. And people, as I've said earlier, have two views of God. Often they see this, uh, in, in, in there's a sw- swing in the pendulum, right? One see this gracious, compassionate God where I'll just live any way I want because grace, 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 and that's antinomianism. This, this rejects that God will deal with sin, that, that Jesus Christ died for and it cost his life, and there, there's no concern with that. I just believe in this Jesus. Kind of a little rabbit foot type of view of Jesus. And then the pendulum swings the other way, and And there's those who mainly see God for his justice and his wrath and anger. And they they tend to have no grace with people. And they're difficult to live with and be around. God is perfectly just in his compassion. And Jesus Christ hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, but he will separate the sheep and the goats in the end. He balances both perfectly. So he's a perfect God of justice and he's a perfect God of love. And let me illustrate this to you so you get this in your mind. We cannot say he's greater in love than he is in justice because we've de-elevated God in some way. And if you de-elevated God, you have not the God. Do you understand that? He is perfect in every way. 
And so he blends compassion and justice in a way that only you and I can marvel at and yet strive by the Holy Spirit to model. Another thought as you think along this because our temptation is to make God out like us, and, and he's not. He actually made us like him, right? Genesis 1.26, let us, let us, plural, the Trinity, make them, these, these people that he's going to form out of the dust of the ground, Adam, and then from his rib, Eve, let us make them in our likeness. And you say, well, we're like God? <laughs> you are. Certainly not like he intended you to be, like Adam and Eve had at first before the fall. But he made you with unique attributes that are reflected from him. And one of them is he's made you with wills and desires and compassion. And that's, that's what is so unique about us. You can love one another. You can forgive. I, I mean, I've spent half my life around livestock and the animal world and, and man I've had the greatest dogs in my life I mean they'll come and sit with me and they're cool I'm not going to marry them you know they're, they don't have that instinct God gave an instinct to help me get a job done and be my friend and, and, and somewhere along that line but that's about it God made us in his image so you can love you can love the things he loves, and you can actually hate properly the things he hates. Hate sin without sinning. And so do you reflect? I mean, you have to ask this question. Do we reflect the compassion of God? Man, there's days I don't. You go, where is that compassion, Lord? Mold that in me. Suppress that wickedness that wants to take away this reflection of you. Isn't it be beautiful someday as we get to heaven? That likeness of God will return in its fullness. And our brothers and sisters who we have said goodbye to many this year right from this pulpit here, they are now in the likeness of the Savior. They've looked upon the one who saved them and they are now like him, free from sin and are modeling this great verse in Genesis 1.26 so perfectly now. And you and I long for that, don't we? We need to live it now. We need to live it now. Look at verse 2 with me. We've got to move. He says, I feel compassion for people because they have remained with me now three days and have eaten nothing. This kind of devotion is, is never recorded about the Jews anywhere. You don't see where they have compassion over pagans. But Jesus does. These are, these are people who will willingly bow down before a piece of wood. And yet Jesus is eager, he's eager to be among them. He's eager to leave his, lead his 12 in amongst these people and teach them and do miracles and heal them and help them. He's taking note of all of this. He's seeing them that they've been with him for three days. The Jews walked around for a day with him and got hungry. These Gentiles are with him for three now. And he's watching and he's aware of them. Notice in verse 3, what a touching verse. If I send them away to their homes, they will faint. I think most of the translations translate this word. It's ekluo here. It, it means to give out. You just give out. You ever seen that happen to somebody? They just gave out. They went as far as they could. That's what, this, this is a strong word. And you go, ah, come on, they're fine. Send them on their way. Well, you're just like the disciples. <laughs> well, look at Jesus. They're... I, if I send them away to their away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And, and, and here's the all-knowing God, right? And some of them have come great distances. He knows where they live. <laughs> he knows just how far that is. Listen, Christ certainly has a tremendous, almost undefinable love for his elect. For those that God has chosen to be saved. He has an incredible love for the elect. But he loves the world. And he loves his creation. And, and us that are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ by his grace alone, we need to mark this. 
It's so easy in today's world with all the things that are going on between the conservatives and liberals and all kinds of problems within our nation, around the world, just to start lining people up and drawing lines, isn't it? That happened a while back. It actually called the Civil War. And Christians were caught on both sides of that. I pray when the shooting starts, you and I love Christ. And we are proclaimers of Him. Second thought, the dangers of short-sighted ministry, uh, memory, excuse me, the dangers of a short, short-sighted or short spiritual memory. Look at verse 4. This is a little bit staggering. And his disciples were, answered him, right? He's telling us he his great compassion on them. Uh, um, they've been with me for three days. They have nothing to eat. I know that because I'm God, right? <laughs> and I, I know how many days we've been out here. If I send them away, they're going to faint. Some of them have come great distances because I know where each and every one of them are from. And his disciples answer and say, where will anyone be able, uses the, the, have the power, is this word here. You should mark this in your Bible. Have the power to find enough bread here in this desolated, and my translation, probably their thought, God-forsaken place, out with the Gentiles, <laughs> to satisfy these people. Where's this going to come from? Why? I mean, you think, wait a minute, didn't they just see this three months ago? Weren't they, weren't they at Perseida? Where Bethsaida, where he sat down 5,000 men and women and children, I mean 5,000 men not counting their women and children, and do something very, very similar? I mean, doesn't that go through your mind? Certainly they hadn't forgotten that. How could you forget that? Is that a fair question? Well, hang on before you start nodding too much. It is a common observation that believers, that's you and I who believe in Jesus Christ, frequently forget God's amazing dealings with us in the past whenever we are confronted with a new crisis. Boy, uh, put that stone back in your pocket, huh? <laughs> it's common, isn't it? And I can prove it to you. Did you sin this week? You should probably say yes. At that moment, when you chose and I chose to sin, I forgot the grace of God. I at least put that back somewhere else because my sin was greater to me than the grace of God. I came into a new crisis, a new problem, a new stress, and I completely forgot that God got me through all of the other ones. See, see this happens to us. We get lost in the moment. And what I love about this text is Christ doesn't get lost in the moment. He's, he's always on mission. He's always fulfilling the plan of God. And notice the depth of the question the disciples ask. Could this be a confession of their own, maybe possibly their own powerlessness in an overwhelming situation? And, and I love that, to think through that just for a moment. You go, Scott, I don't, I don't want to forget the power of God, but I do. Join the club. There are things in our life we feel absolutely, fully powerless to handle. It takes one word from your doctor. <laughs> and you go, what do I do? Or, or difficulty in the relationship of some sort. See, our, it's our problems. And, and, and is, is this what causes doubt and hopelessness at times? Is it because we look and we go, Lord, I'm so short-sighted. I, so, I think my memory is so short spiritually of what you've done, what you've brought me through, what we've gone through in the past, and here I am today, alive and breathing and well and, 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 and maybe not as rich as I want to be or whatever, but, but you've taken me through that. And then that next wave hits and the doubts come with it and doubts were were certainly not because of Jesus' power think about it they, they didn't doubt his power we just saw him do this three months ago he broke bread and man everybody got fed and it was just an amazing thing and so we have to ask the question well do we believe in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ of our Savior I think all the believers in here will say well absolutely I believe that 
then again, maybe we don't doubt his power. Now listen to this. Maybe we don't doubt his power, but we doubt his purpose. Ooh. That's kind of right between the rib, isn't it? See, I, I totally believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his power. He's illustrated to me. Every time I open my Bible, I realize, wow, he's God in every aspect. He can do whatever he pleases. But I doubt his purposes sometimes. Why now, Lord? I really didn't need this. Is there any of this? Am I alone in this? I mean, someone not ahead out there. I'm feeling like I'm alone. I mean, we doubt his purposes. Why does God let these things happen? I've been going to church. I've been given money. I, I'm even in the discipleship program. And yet I'm going through these things and we, we doubt his purposes. But what's so sweet in this text, and even though it's physical, his goal is to satisfy these people. And that's the big question. Are you satisfied with Jesus Christ? Are you satisfied at the doctor's office? Are you satisfied when you open your checkbook? Are you satisfied with Christ? Is he enough? The disciples say, how will we satisfy these people? (laughs) Well, the creator of the world's with you. How will we satisfy them? The word means to make full, to be content. How can we do that out in this desolate, God-forsaken place that you've dragged us up here with these pagans? That's probably what's going through their mind. And when you're somewhere where you don't want to be, the last thing you think about is that God wants you there, right? We'd rather be back with our Jews, our own people. Everybody's clean there. You got us out here in the wilderness. Anybody been to the woodshed or the wilderness? Either or is about the same. The woodshed's actually out in the wilderness. I mean, the Lord takes us there. But he wants us to be satisfied in him. Maybe we forget the sustaining power of God and all that he's done for us because he's not doing what we want him to do at the moment. Or we struggle with the timing of the testing in our life. We, we don't think that we need this in our life. And, and is it possible that we don't like the manner in which God tests us? I mean, I'm, just, I'm sitting there writing this this week going, oh Lord, this is hard to write. Because these are things I struggle with as well. Lord, you know, we could have done this differently. <laughs> it would have been a lot easier. But he, he does things for our good, right? He wants us to be satisfied in him, so he takes us down paths we cannot see. Now, trials, and I, I've said this in athletics, but let me say it in, trial, in trials. Trials are meant to create godly character but often they revealed godless character. In baseball, our coaching, we always say, uh, well, I do at least, you know, sports are, uh, don't always build character, they reveal character. Kid throws his bat up into the stands or whatever. Um, it reveals character, reveals character appearances, reveals my character times. I mean, things, trials, often, well, they're, they're meant to help us reflect Christ, trust and grow in them, but often they, re, they reflect a godless character. There's nothing more discouraging that when we go through a trial and godlessness comes out of us. And in our times of testing, do we pull closer to the word of God or do we push a quick way? I, I know I'm asking a ton of questions here and, and I'm probably in your kitchen a little too deep. But when you go through a hard trial, are you, do you find yourself gravitating toward Christ and his word or pulling away? See, these are things that we must answer. Look at James chapter 1 with me. I'm starting James uh, Tuesday night in, uh, in seminary and, and just been overwhelmed with just kind of reading through this. You know some of these verses, but let's put them in context here as this very young church is being dispersed, going through much trials. He says, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. <laughs> Everybody knows that verse? You all familiar with that one? 
Consider it joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That's the goal. That's what God's trying to do. Help us run this race and run it with integrity and, and worship, right? Let endurance have its perfect results. Notice the phrasing of this, the word here, even in the English. Let the trial produce endurance that makes a perfect result. That's the goal. This is what the disciples couldn't see as their mentor was walking them through this. So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But if you are, right? If you are lacking wisdom to get through this, let him ask God who gives us all generously without reproach and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. See, you don't have faith. Lord, I I accept what you're taking me through, Lord. This is how you would do this. I accept it. I accept it from your hand. I'm weak, Lord. On my own, I'm going to fail. On my own, my godless character is going to be revealed here. But I trust you, and I want you to help me go through this. See, this is what James is leading towards. And the text goes on and on to help you walk through those things. See, remember, Christ had such higher goals than the disciples at this point. They just can't figure out, wait a minute, I didn't want to be here in the first place, and then where are we going to get all this food? And so Jesus is giving yet another lesson of global missions, his compassion on the lost, and fulfilling what his Father has sent him. Back to your text in Mark chapter 8. Third thought, lesson, lessons from the bread of life. Look, notice verse 5. And he was asking them, <laughs> it's so funny, they make this really strong comment, and so he just says, well, how many loaves do you have? Well, we have seven, Lord. <laughs> if you could write that in bold black letters in your Bible, that's probably, we have seven. <laughs> There's 4,000 men and their families out there. We have seven, Lord. You've ever, I don't know, maybe you're, you don't ever doubt the Lord. But you can see it coming through here. Verse seven tells us they also had a few small fish. Regardless, whatever this is, this can't feed a, a, a fisherman, let alone um, the disciples and then all these people. But Jesus is going to demonstrate his love to this Gentile world. And notice verse 6 in the beginning. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them. So here he goes again. He is in complete control, as we saw in the last time he did this. He directs them. He orders them. He commands them as the idea. They obey. They sit down, most probably in groups of people like he did in the last time. And then he takes these seven loaves and he begins to give thanks. And he gives a great example of thanking the Lord for provision, thanking God for provision. Children, that's why we pray. If you forget that while your dad or mom prays before meals, that's what we're doing. Lord, we thank you for this food, providing it to us. We're grateful for that. It's a heart of gratitude. Jesus uh, exemplifies this. But not asking for power or pleading the Father to do something, is he? Isn't that interesting? Oh, Lord, Father, I got only seven you know, the disciples are kind of waiting on this to see if I can pull this off. He's not asking for any of that. He already has the power. He already knows what he's going to do. He, sub- he shares divine authority and divine power with the Father. He shares the glory with the Father. These Gentiles need to know that he's equal with God. And there he thanks God. And notice in verse 6, at the end of 6, and he started giving them to the disciples to serve them. And they served them to the people, verse 7. And they also had a few small fishes. And after he had blessed them, he ordered those to be served to them. And this is fascinating. Effortlessly, Jesus distributes the meal to the disciples. And and they serve the people. So disciples raised to disdain these unclean people, now through the plan of God, are serving them. People tell me all the time, they say, Pastor, if I wouldn't have got saved, I would never be doing what I'm doing for the Lord. And here they are, you know, that you know they're frustrated with where Jesus has them at some level, and now he has turned them from grumblers to servants. They're serving. At least the feeding of the 5,000, when you look at that and you look at this, think about this, there's no natural explanation. You, you, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen those shows that, you know, on Discovery Channel explaining the Bible. And they try to talk about a huge wind that's parted the seas and did all this stuff. And they try to make some kind of human explanation. They don't even know what to do with this. They just throw it out. They dismiss it. But this is Jesus. 
Think about it. This is the creator. He is spontaneously and continually creating bread and fish and providing every group and every person in that group a meal that they'll be completely satisfied with. The disciples keep coming back and there's more food and there's more food and there's more food and he's simultaneously creating without even trying. <laughs> he's God in every way. And his disciples are watching this happen. And Jesus has taken the mentoree now into a hands-on lesson to his disciples. Here's what I can do. Because the time is coming, I want you to get this. The time is coming that these disciples will not just be feeding uh, physical bread. They will be feeding souls with the bread of life. And they needed to see his power and his authority. And though these were pagans and maybe many of them never followed Jesus Christ and believed in his gospel... Jesus was showing that I got a bread that'll never run out. It'll never get stale. And people who love the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, when they hear it preached, when they hear it sung, when they hear it talked about, still it stirs our hearts. Because it's in you. And it's satisfying. Notice verse 8. And they ate and they were satisfied. There's our word. And they picked up the seven large baskets full of what was left over from the broken pieces. He completely satisfies them. And again, it's not hard to make that connection. Are you satisfied in Christ? And I, and I say, well, Scott, I still struggle. Yeah, I do too. But I'm satisfied in my Savior. And you begin to have victory over sins because you're satisfied in Christ. And your memory starts to work better. And the next time that trial comes, you go, whoa, whoa. My Savior got me through the last one. He'll get me through this one. Because your faith is in the one that can satisfy. We say, Scott, is there some differences between this miracle and the last? Well, interesting enough, there's quite a bit. In fact, they're very distinctly different. Even the baskets, it's a different Greek word for the baskets. This is a large basket. You say, well, there's 12 in the last one. Well, this is a large basket. So whatever that means is in chapter 6, verse 43, they pick up 12 baskets. But here, it uses a total different word, meaning a large container basket. That's what's left over. And then one is done in Bethsaida. One's done in Decapolis. One's done to Jews. One's done to Gentiles. One has 5,000 men. One has 4,000 men. One was done on one day. Another one was done on three days. One had five loaves. The other had seven and so forth. And, in, and we'll see next week as we get in down towards 18 and 20, the Lord Jesus distinguished these two events. And, and the reason I'm, I want to make just a point real quick on this is because so many liberals and so many people say, oh, that's just the same miracle. And we're not even sure it was a miracle. Uh, the, Lord, the Lord did this to teach us truth. Look at verse 9 with me. About 4,000 were there and he sent them away. Matthew's account just briefly touches on this, says, and those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, we're talking a massive group of people. And everybody's satisfied. And everybody obeys the Lord. And after all this trailing and being with him and longing to touch him and all the things that went on, he said, go home. And they went home. He's in total control. Last thought. There's a few points here quickly to go through. A briefing of the missions trips. Verse 10, they get in the boat with the disciples and they came to Dalmanoth. Dal, Dal, Dal um, it, it's a district across. He's moving back into Galilee here. Um, and, and now he's, he's completed this missions trip. <laughs> and I just thought, well, here, I'm going to put down a few things. I, I think he taught these men. He mentored them through. A, in your notes, Jesus alone has authority and power. The disciples need it. He had authority of the demonic world. He showed that the Syrophoenician woman had a, had a daughter um, possessed by a demon and he, and he just spoke and he was, he was, this demon was removed. He, he has power over disease. He, he healed people. He, he had power over disabilities. He, he kindly and graciously stuck his fingers in the ears of a, of a deaf man and, and spoke in sign language to him so he would understand. So he has power and authority over just an amazing amount of things here. He has showed he spontaneously creates food. He is the son of God and he has all they need. It was really a lesson on sufficiency. And then B, Jesus reveals the plan of God to his disciples. God's plan was to save the Gentile world. He wanted them to understand these are not people outside of my grace. So we're going right into them. 
I'm going to bring people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and people into my kingdom. And he shows it right off the bat by showing the faith of the Syrophoenician woman and healing the daughter by the, this, this deaf and mute Gentile that he does amazing things with. He says, look, these are people that I'm going to draw to my, my name. And they responded by glorifying in the God of Israel. It's an amazing thought. And so the master mentor was teaching hands-on ministry of global missions. See, Jesus had all the resources the disciples needed. Though their faith was still weak, they hadn't received the Spirit of God, yet Jesus wants them to know, I have everything you need. They heard the Sermon on the Mount. They heard him say in Matthew 6, 31, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, and what shall we drink, and what shall we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Your Heavenly Father knows what you need. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so it was a lesson to them. I have what you need. I have unlimited power. I have infinite resources. And I can control things providentially. That's astounding. And I don't have time to go into this, but think about his providence of who was there, how they were there, where they came from. He's in control of all the providence that's happening. So the master mentor was teaching them unlimited resources that he had, they had in him. Then finally, this is a lesson that we marvel at. Many are called, but few are chosen. That statement comes out of the Passion Week and parable about uh, the wedding feast. But most of these people, most of these people would reject Jesus as the bread of life. The most important meal was that Jesus Christ would die for them. And they could come to the, the true living God through Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how can they not catch that? Well, Judas walked among them. Judas is at this event. He's watched the Savior, the creator of the world, instantaneously create food to feed thousands of people. In the end, he sold them for a servant's money. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Maybe you've been trained. We know people have gone to Bible school and, and even seminary and turn, on, turn away from God. They taste the, the beauty and they, they even taste the work of the Spirit of God and in the end reject Him and walk, walk away from Him or, or really don't serve Him. Or, or maybe you grew up in the church. You've been in church all your life and you have no desire for the Lord. You just do it because you don't know what else to do on Sunday. And maybe you're afraid of God because he may strike you or do something because you've created a, a false view of God and so you, you come and you participate. The point is, there's tons of people here who could clearly, clearly say, oh, he did this, he did that, oh, he's great, he's all that, and never, never see him in the kingdom of God. And so you have to ask yourself at the end of this as you think about Judas and others, are you a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? And I ask this question to lots of people lots of times. Is he glorious to you? Are you struck by him? Do you go, I can't believe he loves me. I can't believe what he did for me. In moments like this, as you sit here and you hear the word, or you're alone with yourself and the Lord, are you still struck in awe at God? Are you still amazed at grace? Or is it just, I've heard this since I was a kid. Because it frightens me when I think of Judas. He was there. When many hear the message a few take up the cross and follow Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, many are called. The message will go out. The calling will go out. But few are chosen. Few follow. So in the end, do you love him? Do you like that old hymn? Say, tell me that old, old story of Jesus and his glory. Are you captured by him? Father, thank you for time together in the Word. 
these events that are recorded, Lord, there's just so few recorded really in these three years of ministry, Lord, but you chose these ones for us to understand. We watch these mentors of yours, Lord Jesus, go through this. We watch their hard hearts at times, their unbelief at times, and yet we ourselves look at this and say, Lord, I don't want to accept the situation you've put in us. I have short-sighted spiritual memory. So Lord, remind us again to, to believe you. Believe that you have the power to, to take care of us, to get us through this life, not just get us through, not just muddle our way through the Christian life, but really be worshipers, really be those who pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there's those among us, Lord, that have just played church and just played the religious game, God, save us today. Don't let us be a Judas. Don't let at the end of the life there's a denial of our Savior. So Lord, I plead for anyone who hears this message, Lord, the Word of God, that they would repent. Turn to you, Lord. Your faith you would give them would cause them to turn away from their sin and accept you as their Savior, Lord. Father, for those in this room that believe you and Strive by your spirit to walk with you. Help us not to be lazy. Help us to accept the trials you put us in, even when we're out in the desert, even when we're out in places of difficulty. Help us to accept your providential will and realize that you have taken the mentoree out to the wilderness to teach us to love you more. Help us accept those things, Lord. And from that, we'll be, we'll be more gospel-centered. We'll speak of you more, Lord. So give us strength, Lord. This, is, this has been encouraging. Strengthen the souls of the believers. Save those who are lost today. In Jesus' name, amen.